0: You're listening to Deliberate Living,
1: the podcast that inspires, empowers, and encourages listeners to live life more authentically.
0: My name is Holly Priestley, and I'm a nomad, coach, creator, and outdoors woman.
1: And I'm Beers, a vagabond, joy artist, permissionary, and story breaker.
0: We explore different ways people choose to ditch the prescribed life we've all been sold and live on their terms,
1: finding freedom and happiness however they choose.
0: Welcome to another episode of the Deliberate Living Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Holly Priestley.
1: And I'm Nathan Beers.
0: And this week, we have our very special guest, Sven Beers. Can you introduce him, please?
1: Sure. Uh, Sven is not someone I'd really interacted with until today, but since we got on this call, we've already been having, uh, before we even started recording, some really fascinating conversations. But uh, Sven was connected to me through a mutual friend of ours, uh, and uh, uh, was told that he might be a really fascinating person to interview for our podcast, that you're living out in Colorado, kind of building your own off-grid home. Uh, is that is that
2: correct? Uh, that's partially correct. So I did live in Colorado for about 20 years. Uh, But Colorado was never home to me. Mm. You know, I lived there longer than anywhere else I'd ever lived in my whole life. Colorado was just my place of work. And I love Colorado. It's beautiful. There's so much I appreciate about Colorado. But again, it was just never home. And so when it came time to actually think about building a home, a house for myself, um, I needed to do that someplace that I wanted to invest that amount of time and energy and that had to be a place that really felt like home to my heart and soul. And for me, there were two choices there. One was going to be the Redwood Forest of Northern California, which is where I grew up. Um, but I had gone out to look for land in the Redwoods maybe 10 years ago. And with the legalization of marijuana in California, even exceedingly remote land became cost prohibitive. So right. that was on the list. Um, the other spot that had always felt home to my heart and soul here in the United States are the Tetons uh, that border Wyoming and Idaho. Um, my mom moved here some 35 odd years ago. And so I spent a lot of my childhood playing in the Tetons. Um, and just a place that always, like when I'm on a trail in Tetons, my feet feel extra happy. You know, my heart sings, my soul sings. It's just this I, I can hike for 50 miles here, and not feel tired because this place just energizes me. Um, so where I landed was on the Idaho side of the Tetons, which when I bought my property was still very affordable over there in a little place called Tetonia.
1: Okay. Yeah. I, there was actually a van gathering there uh, yeah. about three years back that, uh, that I went to. That was a, It's a gorgeous, gorgeous area. Yeah, uh, that yeah yeah that pass over the mountains from there uh gets gets pretty hairy but uh yeah,
2: yeah absolutely. it's gorgeous especially if you're from some of the flatter parts of the country you know even for me driving Teton Pass on a winter day it's it's very steep you know and it can be very icy and it can be very treacherous and there are people now given how the economy is working, you know, with the Jackson Hole side of the mountain being so expensive. I mean, a Mm -hmm. most basic little condominium is close to a million dollars. You know, uh, any kind of tiny little home is well over a million dollars. And so most of the workforce who lives, who works here has to drive in either through the Snake River Canyon, which can be prone to avalanche, or over Teton Pass, which can have avalanches and just be treacherous on a daily basis. Yeah, but that's the, the fact of life in pretty much all the mountain towns now throughout the Rocky Mountain West. The workforce is not able to afford to live where they work.
0: Absolutely. I lived in Colorado for about seven years before I moved into my van. And uh-huh. like just in seven years, you saw it change, you know, and like the people who lived who, who lived there full-time and who worked there and sustained the visitors and the, and the part-timers timeshare people um, couldn't afford to live anywhere. And I know that up in the Jackson hole area, it's just gotten more exponential, which is pretty wild.
2: Yeah. 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 It really is. I mean, when you're talking about, you know, a family of five living in a two bedroom apartment and spending like $2,500 a month, for a mortgage or not for a mortgage. I mean, that's, you should, if you're spending $2,500 a month, you should be paying a mortgage and owning your own home, but instead you're spending that for an apartment. Yeah, you know, just insane. Yeah. So know, tell us
1: a little different. bit about this place that you are building for yourself there.
2: Yeah, and so it really ties into kind of this conversation around financial equity and whatnot that we're touching in on here, which is that for myself, You know, I'm sitting in my mom's house, which is in Jackson Hole, which was built back when things were a little bit affordable here, um, certainly more so than now. But, you know, I saw the writing on the wall very early that at a certain point, my parents will be forced to sell this home because they won't be able to afford the property taxes. You know, as the real estate value just goes up, 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 up. Eventually, all the locals get pushed out because they can't. Right on a house that you own outright, you can't afford to stay in it because you can't pay the annual property taxes, and so that's a really grim reality that I very much want to avoid. Um, and so my goal really was to build something very affordable, you know, very sustainable, and something that that I. Wouldn't cause me great financial stress throughout my life. And so I found a piece of land that's a couple acres, gorgeous little piece of land with a creek running through it and big conifer trees and aspen groves. I mean, it really has all of the primary Rocky Mountain habitats in two acres, you know, from the creek to the rocks to the sagebrush hillside, wow. the, the meadows to the conifers. It's all represented. And so it's a, a very big two acres, because there's so many different habitats contained within it. It's like going through a house that has one room after another. You keep finding new spaces on the land. And so it was very, when I found the land, all of my creativity was just firing off the hook. You know, there's just so much people like oh, over here, I'm gonna a little fort over here. I'm gonna build a little rope bridge, and I'm gonna do this over here. It just is so exciting creatively. Because there was so much to work with there. And then, um, you know, the goal has really for me always been to live sustainably. And so in this case, that means really building in harmony with the landscape. Like I've got a creek that's, you know, I'm right on the edge of my building envelope. So I'm 55, 60 feet from the creek. That creek is likely gonna flood someday. So I need to build planning for water to flow, in this case, under my building. Um, you know, part of what's so wonderful about the property are all the trees for me, you know, having grown up in the redwoods, I love being around the trees. And so I'm not going to clear cut the property so I can build some giant house. Instead, I drew the perimeter of, of, this current building to fit within the layout of the trees. So I just have nestled it right into the trees, um, One of the major goals with the house is to be very water conscious. So I'm building a house that I should be using five or less gallons of water per day. Um, And that means dry composting, toilet, you know, gray water goes into some garden beds to water some plants, um, which that is also driven by the fact that I'm, because I'm close to the Creek, I cannot do a traditional septic system. So it's basically an above ground fully sealed leach field where you're using that gray water to water plants and evaporate off the moisture. Um, but there's no chance of any of the gray water, kitchen sink water ever getting to the creek. So the creek stays pure and clean. Um, and then, you know, being as energy efficient as possible. So doing thick walls, lots of insulation. Um, and the one of the most fun aspects of the whole build has been salvaging materials. I happen to be very fortunate in living in a community where our landfill allows us to salvage. And so the entire exterior of my house came out of the dump. All the metal siding, the front wall is really beautiful, cedar siding, that all came out of the dump. My biggest window in the house, which is a seven foot by four foot window, that came straight out of the dump. Um, Yeah, I mean, so I've probably... I would say I've salvaged close to $50,000 worth of my building materials, which is probably about a third of my overall cost has come straight out of the dump. And the house is beautiful. It doesn't look like a a shantytown shack or something. It looks gorgeous, you know? Um, And so it's, you know, in any creative project, having some constraint or limitation allows you to drive the creativity. If it's just a blank slate, it can be too hard to figure out what to do, but having these materials started driving the design on the exterior and how I wanted it to look and that sort of stuff. So yeah, it's been a super fun, super engaging, awesome project. And because I'm able to engage it in this way, the house has a living feeling to it. It's, it's, it's a piece of art as much as it is a home. And so it has all that energy that i put into it that just makes it feel so alive, even prior to being complete. So that's
1: I, love, I love that so much. Yeah. Uh, what, what are you doing for, you mentioned the composting toilet, what are you doing? Are you sourcing any of your water from the creek or your electric from the creek in any way? Or uh, what are you doing as far as, as those uh, quote unquote utility items go?
2: Yeah, so electricity, um, I'm very fortunate in that I have like this very wilderness setting, feels like you're in the national park, but I am on a county maintained road. So I'm at the end of a dead end road, so not much traffic, but I do have electricity running down the street and I do have um, a phone line. So I've got internet um, and it means I can do grid tied solar. You know my goal is again okay. be sustainable. I want solar energy, um, but not having right now with the battery technology not being quite where we want it to be. I'm very happy not to try and do a battery-based system, you know.
1: Right, so, right. Yeah, that that with, with it being so wooded and at that latitude, that's yeah. uh that'd be a little more complicated.
2: Yeah, and I think I think it could be done for sure. I mean, we've got enough sunshine and You know, but it's really nice not to mess around with batteries given how expensive they are and how much maintenance they require. The solar panels have just been plummeting in price and skyrocketing in performance. So the panels are awesome. The inverters are awesome. The batteries are really still the weak link. So being able to just patch right into the grid, you know, pump solar out when I'm out traveling, when I'm not using much electricity, I expect, you know, so all the electricity, the heat in the house will be electric which is not the most efficient way to generate heat. But if you're pulling on solar, it kind of doesn't matter because my, my.
1: Right. You're converting that sunlight into electricity and then into heat. And yeah, it's.
2: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So you're not drawing
1: that much off the grid.
2: Right, right. Exactly. And ideally we'll see if I guessed correctly off the bat with how many panels I got. Um, But ideally I want to kind of break even. You know, I'd love to be generating a little more electricity than I use. Um, But given how I think thermally efficient the house is going to be, I don't think I'm going to need much electricity for heat. You know, I've got good passive solar, some good sunlight coming in through big windows on the front um, and then good insulation and a really tight build envelope. Um, So I think I'm going to be pretty good on energy consumption. And then um, water... Ultimately, I'm going to see if I can get away with a hand dug well, like a shallow 10 foot well, because I am right on the creek and the water is there's there's water pretty low, you know, shallow in the ground. Um, And given how little water I'm using. I think I'll be able to do that, but we'll see. You know, wells are expensive to have dug if you're going down 40, 50, 100 feet. and I could truck in a lot of water before it made sense to pay for a hundred foot well. So it's either the hand dug well, or it's a water tank, you know, collect some rainwater, melt some snow, bring a little in from the grocery store, whatever, you know, so we'll see how that plays out. That'll be later this summer when I start looking at well stuff.
1: So what's your, what's your background experience? Experience, that you have the skill set and the mindset to step into a project like this?
2: Yeah, you know, um, I've I'd never done construction before. i had done little projects here and there. Uh, but I grew up watching my dad totally like when I was like four years old. He built an addition that kind of doubled the size of the little farmhouse we had on the North Coast of California. So I just knew in my mind, I just knew it was possible. Like normal people can swing a hammer, can drive some screws, can cut boards. It's not rocket science. There is some critical engineering, you get that sorted out. Um, but it always just seemed very doable. And it was always something that for me was a lifelong dream of it's the ultimate creative project to, to make a space and to shape it in such a way that it is conducive to what you want it to be. Like, do you design a space for writing? How do you make a space that's really supportive of your writing project? How do you make a space that's really supportive of your pottery work or your office, whatever it is, right? What's a good kitchen that makes it really fun to cook? So I've always loved playing with inhabited space and trying to make space work well for what I wanna do in that space. And so it's just the perfect culmination of that lifelong mini exploration of let me build a space from scratch that will support me in doing what I want to do in the world. And part of that also stems from being a lifelong circus artist. Normal houses are basically worthless to me. Normal houses have a lot of features that I don't need and tend to lack the couple features that I do need, which are open space and high ceilings. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't need a luxurious bathroom. I don't need some super bedroom. I don't need so much of what a normal house has. What I need is open space to do my work. Um, And so I've always kind of known that ultimately I was going to have to build my own house. Um, But really, you know, this has been learning on the fly. I think it's, I'm almost embarrassed to say it, but I'm going to be coming up here on one year of working on the electrical work. Because there was so much to learn. I've never done you know, anything other than replacing an outlet or a light switch. And so to go from that basic low electrical work to I have now wired my entire house, I've wired my electrical panel, you know, doing all of that like full electrical wiring for the entire house. There was a lot to learn and even just to learn about what are the component pieces that get used to uh-huh. do very simple tasks.
0: And when you're working with Italy? both
1: DC and AC like that, you got to go through all of the mm-hmm. the inversion steps and yeah, just understanding the way it travels differently and yeah, right.
2: yeah, yeah. So that that has taken way longer. Um, and so, in terms of your original question of what's the skill set that gave me the confidence to do this, really, is sheer stubbornness. You know that may be my greatest skill. Here, is just you know, and as a circus artist, a juggler, you know tenacity—the ability to persist and to try something over and over and over and over until you get it—you know that is ingrained in me for my entire life. So I'm just not afraid to tackle a project that is going to take a long time, that's going to require a great deal of patience and persistence. That's just innate for me. Um, so that's been a lot of it. And then That's I do have, background. I've made circus props for myself. I've you know, helped my dad on carpentry tasks around the house. Like there was enough that I know how to use a drill and you know, most tools with a reasonable skill. You know. my, my downside is that most of my fabrication was actually building bicycles. So working in a machine shop. Um, oh. And so I'm always trying to get wood to behave like metal. I want to be able to get things to within a thousandth of an inch tolerance. And you can't buy a straight two by four anymore. You all have these right. curves in them. And it's so maddening to try and get something to be straight when you're working with warped wood that's available now due to the smaller trees that we're able to harvest. So, yeah, sometimes I have to remember, OK, this can actually be within a quarter inch tolerance. It doesn't need to be a thousandth of an inch. <laughs> you know. So. Does
0: your municipality, uh, whatever county you're in, do they are they requiring your house to be built to code in any way? Are they oh yeah like coming in and doing inspections and things like that? What yeah. has that yeah. process been like from, from a logistical standpoint? Like if somebody wanted to do the same thing you're doing, like what do they have to be aware of?
2: Yeah, I mean, certainly I do know some people who have built very off grid and completely just have not told the county that they're doing anything. You know, I do not recommend that fire, <laughs> right? exactly. Cause at any point somehow like you get a new neighbor who does get a yeah. building permit and now the inspector comes up and sees all these buildings on your property or whatever. And you're in a whole lot of hot water. For me, it's been incredibly important to do everything by the book. I don't ever want to deal with getting in trouble or any of that kind of hassle, you know? Yeah. Um, the good news for me is that being in a smaller, more rural County The building department has been amazing to work with. They've been so friendly and so helpful and just so easy to deal with. Um, And so it's like, I can just walk into the office anytime and be like, so I'm at this point in the process. What do you guys need from me? What am I supposed to be doing? What's the next step? And they just go, well, here, do this little thing, fill out this paperwork or whatever. Um, So it's been really great. It's been really good. The inspectors are super friendly, super helpful. They've been out a bunch of times. And it's kind of funny because, you know, I'm taking this artisan approach to my build. Mm -hmm. Um, Every builder who has seen it and the inspector, every time he comes out, they're like kind of blown away at the quality of the build. Because I'm just building to that sense of like, when I've made things in the past, other prop projects or whatever for my circus arts, you know, when something feels solid and tight and it feels right, Mm -hmm. you know, it has that feeling. It's like, Mm -hmm. You know, a nicely made car versus a cheap one, you know, where you're like, I better close this door really gently because I don't want to break the handle <laughs> versus like, ah, yeah, it just feels solid, you know? And so I'm building to that, that sense of just everything feels solid. It feels tight. I know it's secure. I'm looking at how the hardware's coming together. I know it's bomb proof. Um, and obviously in modern construction, a lot of stuff is just slapped together really fast to get it done quickly. To
1: and yeah, yeah, just kind of
2: yes. quick, just slap it together. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's been nice to get that feedback that, that they're like, wow, you're doing a great job out here, you know? Um, and equally really nice because the County now knows that I am striving for a high quality level. Yes. And so when I approach them with stuff like, okay, so my water system is going to be non-traditional they know I'm the kind of person who's not trying to skirt the law or not trying to do something cheap or just make it easier on myself. I'm actually trying to build to a higher standard.
1: Mm -hmm. I just
2: need to do it in a different way because I'm not allowed to have a septic system. So it's building that trust. So then when I say, this is how I want to approach this, they're much more likely to
1: approve
2: my approach than to be like, God, this guy's a fly by night. You know, we don't trust anything he's doing. There's no way we're letting <laughs> him do something different, you know. So, yeah, everything's by code and that's just really critical. And especially like with the electrical stuff, I don't know enough about electricity to want to make a variance. You know, yeah. like, I'm really glad to have the big fat code book, the size of an encyclopedia that I can refer to and make sure that I'm doing everything right. So I'm not going to burn my own house down with electrical fire you know because that's the kind of stuff like electrical it's critical yeah so it is
0: really so, important so for for things like that for electrical like i mean i the my electrical experience is very limited and it's mostly like van related right. so it's it's really limited Local. and it still scares the shit out of me yeah like i would not like if i was going to build a house like you are i'd be like i'm just going to hire that out like i want a professional to do that because i know that i don't know enough about it so your decision to tackle like especially things like that that are very complicated that are very scary that are you know have a lot of nuance and it's taken you a year to do the wiring for your house um your decision to do that yourself and not hire that out was that primarily budgetary or was that your commitment to you know this artisan thing and you want to know everything and you're learning and
2: Yeah, it's much more about me wanting to understand the systems.
0: mm -hmm. You know, I
2: hate not being able to fix something myself. Um, And with this house, I will have built everything, so I will know exactly how to fix everything. And right now, we're we have a building boom going on in Teton Valley, and so if you need an electrician to come look at something for you, it might be a month. Yeah, you know, might be a couple months if it's a significant project, and I I have no patience for that. BS. Like I don't, I don't want to sit around. I want to just like I it's, it's there. I'm just gonna fix it. Um so yeah, there was a really strong drive, especially with the electrical work. That was definitely the area of my least expertise, you mm-hmm. know? Um, and I knew it was gonna be kind of the crux of the whole project because this is where I'm having to learn everything from the ground up. Um, but that was really important to me to be able to understand it. And now the thing is I could wire a second house in a month. By myself. Yep. Yeah. You know, and I could do a second house, much larger house because most of the work it's, it's relatively straightforward. It's not physically taxing. It's just knowing how things are supposed to be done, you know? And so now that I know that it's like no problem. And I'm so excited to have that knowledge base. I mean, having learned what I did with wiring the house, makes it much easier now for me to approach electrical issues my truck because I understand electrical yeah. systems so much right. than I ever did.
0: It's transferable.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally.
1: Super valuable skill set. And, and I experienced totally. a lot of that with – I lived in a number of different vans or rigs, and uh-huh. the, the first one I was in long-term, I built myself from the ground up, and similarly I didn't have any experience. I was kind of learning it as I went. Right. And later when I bought a different rig, the electrical system specifically was just a mess. Uh-huh. And it was literally, there was just this clump of wires, no telling what was what for what. And oh, wow. it was uh, it cool. was just a nightmare to try to troubleshoot anything right. that wasn't anything. working. Whereas in my, my prior rig, because I had done it all from scratch, I knew like when something wasn't working, I could just mentally think through, oh, oh yeah, it's either here, here or here. Right. And I could go yeah. and check, check those and be done with it. And right. so, yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing how much it in the long term helps to
2: simplify a lot when you yeah. have
1: built it and you know yeah. where everything is.
2: Yeah, and to take the time, I mean, I've really taken the time with my electrical on this to make it a very clean and clear wiring configuration. You know, so given how small the, the building is, it's 500 square feet. I could have, you know, 10 circuits for the whole building, you know, and that's because the oven has to have a dedicated circuit. The refrigerator has to have a dedicated circuit. There are certain things that require dedicated circuits. But literally the rest of the building could all be one circuit. Right. But in terms of keeping it a system that's much easier to relate to and process and work on, and you know there is a workshop aspect to this, so I don't want to blow circuits when I'm using heavier tools. Um, I basically broke it out into like almost 30 circuits. I think I'm at like 28 circuits, you know. And so that means everything is really segmented in a very clear, logical fashion, and you're never worried about like in any room, if you blow a circuit on an outlet, you don't also go dark, you know, the lights and the outlets are always separate. So you always got one or the other. And all those different spaces are fully separated. So you're never confused. And this kind of gets back to the safety a little bit, Holly. You know, if I'm working on this particular wall of the building in this area, it's on this one circuit. And there's not like another weird outlet that happens to be patched in there in another room, which sometimes happens in buildings. So I've really done that. The other thing on the safety side, cause I also have a very healthy fear of electricity and the power that it can conduct through you with potentially <laughs> lethal effect. Um, you know, basically uh, current code requires that I have a uh, shut off on the outside wall of my building And then my main circuit panel its not technically my main because that's a special terminology, but the panel that has all my circuits in it um, is on the inside. And so I've got two panels that can be fully turned off. And then I've also got where my electricity hits the property, a third place where I can fully shut it off. So it just gives me supreme confidence that there's no electricity moving anywhere through the building while I'm handling wires. And that's really nice for a beginner like myself to know, like everything is fully shut down. I can check it with a little meter and yeah, there's no chance for me to get electricity because there's no electricity in the building when I'm working on it.
1: Hearing you talk about this uh, and knowing that you're a circus performer, uh-huh. to me, where my mind goes is some of the parallels potentially between the, your attitude towards working with the electricity and the way I've heard other circus performers talk about dealing with fire when they're doing fire spinning. And, uh, it is, is that an accurate comparison and has that influenced, um, your, the way that you're working with it?
2: Yeah, I certainly would say that. And, you know, it really goes all the way back to kind of my personality as a kid. Like I loved, riding my bicycle and being really physically active. And I had a very clear recognition that if I get injured, I don't get to play. And so injuries is yeah. not acceptable. And then that certainly feeds into then me a little bit later in life becoming a circus artist as a 13 year old. You know, there's so much that I do that the audience believes is very dangerous. And if I was doing it at that moment for the first time, it would be stupidly dangerous. But I'm not doing it for the first time. It's stuff that I have progressively worked on. I've built skills on top of skills on top of Mm -hmm. skills over decades so that I can do something that is exceedingly dangerous, but I am fully in control. I know exactly what the variables are. I know exactly what I need to pay attention to. And I can assess any given day or situation. Is this particular act or activity safe or not? or how do I modify it to make sure that I stay safe? So yeah, I'm very safety conscious as someone who's been handling fire for now 30 plus years, um, and never had a major accident. Um, and you know, doing things like walking tight wire and other things that could really lead to significant injury. Um, and yeah, that absolutely plays into how I approach all the building. You know, if I'm lifting a heavy beam, which, you know, I moved 500 pound beams into place by myself, you know, and I'm certainly not going to do that by lifting it with my puny little juggler arms. You know, <laughs> um, I did it with using all my circus rigging skills, but also taking that approach of this thing cannot drop because if it drops, my foot might get crushed, my knee might get crushed. And if that happens, I don't get to go do my fun circus thing. So there's no injuries allowed. So everything always has to be controlled and backed up. You know, when you're lifting something really heavy like that with come-alongs and winches, it's like you've got your primary winch or come-along that's, that's lifting it, and then you've got your backup. So if that thing fails, it doesn't drop to the ground or collide with me. So, yeah, it, 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 it all really interweaves very closely my approach to how I um, – deal with dangerous circus skills and how I handle the building process, you know, and just a really meticulous attention to detail and making sure you're not putting yourself in harm's way.
0: Yeah. Very methodical. Yeah. It's super interesting to listen to. And so it sounds like you've had plenty of life experience with like kind of living an alternative lifestyle, becoming a circus performer and, you know it it sounds like it, this is just like well obviously this is what comes next obviously you're going to build you know a sustainable home in the woods and like do it all yourself right
2: yeah absolutely <laughs> and you know it really is one of those things where it's like from the time that I was a little kid I was out on the fringe I was always felt like I, I did not I always always had an easy time getting along socially with everyone, fitting in in that sense. But I always felt very different. I'm like, I'm not clearly not doing the things the way that normal people do them. And that's just fine. And so that having had that as a young kid and parents who embraced that with me and just gave me unconditional love and go do your thing, little weirdo, Um, (laughs) it's like, there's never been any thought or concern around doing things in a very different way. You know? So when I graduated college, there was no hesitation to dive full time into being a self-employed circus artist. And there was never any doubt that I could somehow figure out how to make that work. And the same thing with tackling a, you know, a huge project, like developing a property, doing all the environmental planning, all the different elements. It's just like, yeah, i I've, I know how to juggle nine balls. You know, I put in the time (laughs) to do that. So building a house from the ground up, totally by myself, feels very approachable to me, you know?
0: So are your parents, um, you said that they were always very supportive of you and your choices and your lifestyle, your personality. Are they on like kind of an alternative journey as well, or are they more just, you know, kind of your average parents and and then they have a circus performer as a kid and, and yeah, they it really, rather than trying to like shove you into a box.
2: Yeah. I certainly wouldn't call them average parents. Cause they, you know, as I've known other people through life, I recognize that my parents are superb parents. They really did the critical things very well, which was to provide that foundation of unconditional love, which then gave me the security to launch out and try really difficult, risky things where I might fail. Um but, in terms of lifestyle at this point, they live pretty normal American lives. You know they when I was little, they had kind of been part of the hippie back to the land, northern California, go buy a little eight acre farm and you know uh, live a semi alternative lifestyle. I mean, my mom worked in a hospital, my dad worked in a printing shop, but my dad also could build just about anything and had a little hand printing press that he used to print his own books where he literally took every single letter and placed each little metal letter into the t- type tray, carved every illustration by hand and made a book from scratch. Wow! Um,
0: mm-hmm.
2: And so I that. was exposed to that kind of mentality, you know, which for me then set the stage for like, yeah, you can just build stuff if you want. That's not a problem. You don't have to go buy things, you know. And in fact, there were certain toys I wanted as a kid, and we didn't necessarily have the budget. My dad was like, "Well, we'll just go make it," you know. And we made a version of the toy instead of buying it. And so there was always that awareness that we can do these kind of things, you know.
0: That's very. Think that's awesome. I wish more people had that growing up. I mean, and that's kind of the point of the podcast, right? Is to share those stories and to share ways that people are living deliberately alternative or just, you know, deliberate living in whatever way. And it sounds like Side you got off on got a really it. good, you got a, you got up on a really good foot.
2: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, I, I really do owe so much to my parents because so there was never a doubt in my mind that they would love me no matter what harebrained idea I had, you know, including like when I was in college between my junior and senior year, I knew I didn't want to just come out to Wyoming and work in the retail store that my mom managed. You know, I had done that for a few summers and, and it was fine. I mean, it was a very cush job. I got to spend half an hour a day just juggling in the store because there was a lull when the shootout happens on the town square in Jackson. Um, so, I mean, it could not have been a better retail job. But I knew I was at the point where I was like, I need to now really invest in my circus arts skills. And this was before lots of circus camps and circus schools were around. So it was up to me to just invest the time. And I just bought a plane ticket to Europe. And I flew to Europe with basically $350 to last me three and a half months in Europe. And by the time I got to to England, and spent some time with one of my best friends there. So by the time I hit France, I had $50 to last me three months. And I had to pay for college the next year. <laughs> and so I just threw myself into the fire, basically. I said, okay, like I've got literally a handful of change in my pocket. I'm not touching that $50. I'm not going to touch my credit cards that I have, you know, that could have saved my ass if I'd gotten myself into a corner. Um, it's like, all right, just go start juggling in front of people. And you know, the first couple of weeks, I probably made a couple dollars a day. And that's it. But that was enough to buy a couple baguettes, you know, and have food. And then it's just one of these experiences where if you put your trust in life and in the universe and in the goodness of humanity and combine that with a very strong intention and combine that with the willingness to listen to the feedback you're getting. If you put those three things together, miracles start happening. You know. And so for instance, first thing I did was go to Paris in France. Because Paris, there's lots of street performing there. It happened to be a very rainy week. So I wasn't able to perform outside. I wasn't able to go into the underground railroad system the tube or, you know, the equivalent to French underground um, because they don't allow street performing there. So I was making no money. I had nothing. And so finally, I just thought, okay, I've got to get the hell out of Paris and go someplace where I can do some actual street shows and get some money happening. Um, walked out to the edge of the city and it's evening and I'm getting ready to hitchhike as far as I can before dark. And I'm faced with this choice. I basically have one dollar in French money at like five francs. And the choice was, do I buy a baguette right now for dinner or do I go to bed hungry and have a baguette for breakfast the next morning? And I just like, you know what? Fuck that. Like that is a terrible way to do this trip. I'm not (laughs) going to do this trip on a poverty mentality. So I'm going to go have dinner and trust that things will work out. So I went in, bought a baguette with my dollar And came out and found a hundred franc note on the sidewalk. And then the next day, when I was hitchhiking, um, this guy picked me up and said, Oh, you're doing this journey, you're street performing. I'm going to take you to Avignon, France, or I'm going to, that's where you need to go because there's a street festival there. And that's where there'll be lots of, and so just by me sticking my thumb out and hitchhiking on the side of the road, I get picked up by a person who has information that ended up sending me to this place, Avignon, France, where they have, it's like a mini Edinburgh Fringe Festival, a little play festival with lots of stuff happening out in the streets. And because I was there, I didn't make a lot of money because I was performing alongside much, much better performers with decades of experience. But all of those performers helped me craft an actual show. They're like, dude, you're the, right. the end. That is not your finale. You need to do this. Other thing is your finale. This thing needs to be your opening. They helped me structure a show. And so then when I left Avignon, the rest of the summer, I was able to make proper money. have this amazing experience. No itinerary, just following my intuition every day, sleeping in castle ruins, you know, sleeping. <laughs> people would adopt me like this family in Switzerland, just took me into their home. And it was literally like miracles every day because I was really clear. In the why flow. I
0: was
2: yeah. I was in the flow. I was clear about why I was there. I was following the flow of things and I was listening really closely to my intuition and to what the universe was telling me. And so it's amazing what you can do if you do that. And that, you know, coming back around to the build process without any building experience, it's very much the same process. I will sit and stare at some of my framing work in the corner and I know I've got to figure out how to bring it together, how to join something. And you just stare at it and stare at it and eventually the answer presents itself. Or sometimes you know, I'm going to bed at night and I'm just thinking about it, thinking about it, thinking about it, visualizing it. And then in the morning I wake up and I'm visualizing it and then I finally see the answer. Mm -hmm. And I always know if I trust the process it's always a hundred percent clear when I have the best answer, you know? And when I don't have the yeah. best answer, I'll be moving in fits and starts. Like it's not flowing. And so then I step back and go, okay, clearly I'm barking up the, the wrong tree. What is the real answer here? And walk away from it for a while and wait, and then finally go, Oh, this is the way that it's going to work really well. This is the best solution to that technical challenge. And so it's that same process just applied to fabrication and that makes it really fun you know it's a creative journey instead of a chore
0: that's amazing I want to I want to come up to the Teton Valley with a car full of baguettes and listen to your life story <laughs> because it sounds fucking fascinating and I want to know more yes
2: <laughs> yeah yeah no I've, I've been very blessed in that way you know to to discover early on that I had some good intuition and to learn to trust it. And that was one of the other goals of that trip to Europe was to make enough money to pay for college, to, which I did, um, to get to spend the whole summer training really intensively, juggling all day, mm-hmm. which I could do. But it was also to hone my intuition because I discovered kind of in high school, I discovered that my logical brain is really sharp. And I can pro, con, 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 build up a stack of pros and cons and never tip the balance to help me make a decision. I cannot make decisions logically because I can never make the balance. So I have to go with my intuition. And so having learned that early and then having created projects where I forced myself to hone that intuition you know, then gives me the confidence to tackle something like building a house because I know I can intuit things that I don't have any right to actually know because no one's ever taught me.
0: But if somebody monitor. who was listening to your story right now was like, man, I wish I had stronger intuition. I wish that I could talk to my intuition as clearly as this guy does. What kind of advice would you give to somebody who's who struggles with their intuition? I believe that everybody has intuition that we all have a gut instinct or, you know, whatever. We have different words for it. Um, But I, and I do think that it's a skill that you can grow, that you can strengthen. It's a language that you can learn to speak. How do you suggest somebody start that process if they don't have one?
2: Yeah, I mean, the the first thing, and this is just me personally, but I'm sure it's true for a certain percentage of people. My intuition is totally heart-centered. So if my heart isn't open, I'm not going to be on my game. And so I know that I've got to navigate life in a way that I really keep my heart open energetically. Um, And if I'm starting to shut down, you know, maybe I'm in a relationship and I'm a little bit, you know, like, do I really want to? I'm afraid of intimacy right now. I don't know. And I start closing down, everything gets messed up. I don't have the clarity that I'm used to. So I've got to very actively tend to making sure that I'm keeping my heart open to life. Um, And then from there, it's a game, you know, and you like, there are so many opportunities, like when you're driving through a city, right. And trying to decide, man, which direction is traffic going to be best? Do I take this off ramp or should I take the next off ramp? You know, I will imagine one choice. My hands are on the steering wheel um, and I'll imagine one choice in each hand off ramp. One is in my right hand off ramp. Two is in my left hand which do I feel drawn towards? So I feel a little more pulled left or in the right. And so it's that kind of like moment to moment, day-to-day decision-making. Oh, I'm feeling hungry right now. What does my body really need? You know, I know I want that cinnamon roll, but is that what my body's really craving? (laughs) Oh, an apple sounds really good. Okay, go get an apple. And so doing that process where anytime you have a chance to make a decision, to try and take a moment to listen internally um, and then go with what you hear internally and then see if you were right. Because you're not always going to be right. You know, you might take the first off ramp and be like, oh, there's construction at the base of the off ramp. Now I'm tied up in traffic. I should have taken the other one, right? But that's how we calibrate and learn to refine our intuition, to know when am I hearing my own clarity And when am I just hearing the chattery voices in my head that are trying to figure it out logically, you know? Um, And like I said, just to come back to the earlier thing, I find one of the easiest things is if I can have two possibilities and feel what does one feel like? What does the other feel like? Mm -hmm. What does one feel like? What does the other go back and forth with those two until I feel called towards one. That's just a really straightforward way to start feeling that differentiation
0: yeah you really inhabit your body
2: yeah it's a very physical there is like a very subtle it's
0: not so it's not so cerebral it's not in your brain right that's that's yeah. the pro con pro con pro con pro con that's the exactly. logic right. things out Indeed, that's uh, where you get in trouble. and when you yeah when you come back when you come down into your body and you inhabit your body then you can start to feel things more and i love your note about calibrating because we're not always going to be right and sometimes when you're first starting out on the journey, it can be really discouraging and you're like, wow, ah, I can't trust myself. I made the wrong decision. And like, that's the worst thing you can do for it. Be like, I can't trust myself. And then right. I'm going to trust society or I'm going to trust my logical brain. And then you're like even more frustrated and you don't necessarily know why. So it's yeah. just learning how to communicate with yourself. And I think that it's, it's a practice and it's never going to stop.
2: Right. Absolutely. I mean, there's, there's times when I'm crystal clear and I'm just like, I'm so on it. And then I'll, I'll get a little bit lazy and I'll get less clear <laughs> and I've got to like reinvigorate the practice. Um, another one that I love to do uh, that I've adopted in recent years is treating my hometown as a foreign city. Yes. You know, travel. Yes. When you're traveling in a place you're not familiar with, you tend to go with the flow more. When you're in your hometown running errands, you're like, I'm going to go on the logical map through the city, from the post office, to the grocery store, to the thrift store, to the hardware store. But if instead of, instead of mapping myself logically through my hometown, if I can just feel like these are the things I need to do, where am I going first? Oh, let's go to the thrift store first. And invariably what happens is I will bump into a friend of mine who if I had run the errands in the logical sequence, I wouldn't have been in that store at that time to see them.
0: Yeah. Or
2: there are times where I'm like, I don't know why I'm walking into the thrift store right now, but I feel like I'm, oh, killer. Like I just scored an awesome pair of gloves or, you know, whatever it is. Like I was totally needing a new pair of pants and I can never find pants that fit me because I'm a smaller guy. And here's the perfect pair of pants. That's why I walked in here today. So that can be a fun, like no pressure way to play with following that flow through the day. Um, And the other one is just knowing that sometimes those wrong answers are as helpful for calibrating ourselves as the right Mm -hmm. answer. Because when you're right all the time, you don't know, because when you're right, things are just going well.
0: Yeah. Right, And then you don't trust yourself necessarily anyway, because you don't have any of that contrast.
2: Yeah, did I have an easy day today just because it was an easy day or because I made all the right intuitive decisions? But when you every now and then have one that's off, it's like, oh yeah, okay, cool. I now I'm, I'm reminded of what the right decisions feel like and what the less, you know, float, fluid decisions feel like. The other one that all those
0: I'll- who
1: are just listening to this and not watching the video, my face hurts right now because i'm just <laughs> taking this oh. in and like my i can't get this grin off my face and I, from someone whose career is largely built upon being among other things an efficiency expert uh, right. like giving you giving that example of going in just the right most efficient routes to hit all the different places that you need to hit versus being in that open hearted space of, all right, what, what feels right, right now, what feels aligned and like that's something that is such an internal struggle for me. Sure. And, and, It's such an encouragement to me to hear you talk about that and to reflect in my own life how many times I have had very similar experiences to what you experienced in in France of just meeting the right person at the right time when you're just allowing yourself to be in the flow and to be in... That abundance mentality and not operating out of fear or out of limitations and just yeah. letting what is for me come. Yeah, uh, we 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 had an episode uh, a couple months back where we were talking about money and finances and mm-hmm. and how much in that arena I have learned to just right. trust that what I need is going to be there when I need it, and I had like some similar situations that really brought that home in a way yeah. that it sounds like, yeah, when you found that hundred franc note uh, after deciding to, you know what, I'm going to buy myself the baguette tonight and let tomorrow provide for tomorrow. Right. And it's, ah, it's just, it's so beautiful to me to hear you taking some of those concepts and in applying them, so thoroughly throughout your life to like, which, which exit do I take? And, ah, oh, yeah, actually one of my, one of my dearest friends I met because I knew I needed, I needed to not be in LA. And right. so I just started driving and I saw an exit that felt right. And I took it and I ended up meeting and, absolutely remarkable human being right. and oh wow
2: oh thank yeah. you Sven. <laughs> and that you know so to me it really speaks to what efficiency are you looking for you know mm. there's like machine efficiency where i get something done in the least amount of time Right. but there's a different efficiency that serves the whole of a human being It's not just about getting something done in the least amount of time. It is about like the connection we're sharing right now that's lighting all of us up. Like that has a value, you know, like to take the time to enjoy a conversation enriches my life and might nudge me in a direction that I might not have gone, which then leads me to another thing. And so the path is the best path I rarely find to be linear. It's not a straight line. Yeah. You know, it meanders some, but each point in the meandering brings some richness that is the most efficient way to get where I'm really going, which is to the best version of myself. That's the real destination, right? Is me becoming a better, more evolved, more awake, more enlivened, engaged human being. And that is a, a more meandering path with some more waypoints. Um, the other thing that I would really speak to on this is for the past few years, I've been working with the notion of skillful surrender. And so as an artist, whether you're a painter, a musician, uh, an athlete, you know, skiing down a mountain or like a circus artist, the first part of your artistic journey is learning to control your instrument, whether that is a musical instrument, a paintbrush and paints, or my body as a circus artist or a mountain athlete, you know, mountain biking, skiing, whatever. After you have the basics of control, what's most exciting is to not be in control, right? Mm. If I just want to ride a bicycle downhill, I could just find a really gentle little paved hill and I can go down the hill, but it's way more interesting to be on a, Windy, twisty mountain single track on a mountain bike where you don't necessarily know what's coming around the next corner and you have to flow with the landscape. You know, as a juggler, it's way more interesting for me to respond to music and push myself physically until I actually drop the ball. When the ball drops, that's when something new and interesting can happen. If I'm just doing my choreography it's a little bit stale. There's nothing new that can happen. But as soon as life throws me out of my choreography, now new and exciting things can happen. And kind of bringing this back around to our discussion of um, intuition and something like a build project or any kind of endeavor that someone might launch into, one of the greatest gifts of me building this house has been the complete... Restoration of my trust in the universe. And that has happened Mm. by significant things going horribly wrong, seemingly. (laughs) Appearing to go wrong.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think we all know about that.
2: (laughs) At each point in this build where something has appeared to go off the rails or basically not go according to my agenda and what I was planning to do invariably something better has happened than what i originally pictured in my mind and so it has just really reminded me that even when things seem to go wrong they're actually going right i just haven't seen the conclusion yet and so to really trust like oh i made the wrong turn now i've got to stop for gas at this gas station because i'm running out of gas oh but look at this i met this amazing person who becomes a lifelong friend things appear to be going wrong but actually they were going right in a way that I just hadn't conceived of yet. And so to be able to be in that level of trust and, you know, like the classic example of this for me is I had salvaged this really like premium metal siding, had like this, this lustrous kind of champagne finish. It was like really expensive metal siding that got cast off of some $10 million project, you know, here in this rich area. And I was so excited that the universe had given me this boon of this amazing building material that I got for free. And I was going to use it for my exterior metal for the house. I did not know about galvanic reactions and the fact that when you stack that kind of metal, if there's any moisture between it, it reacts between the two layers of metal and creates white rust and so all of this metal while it was being stored got completely corroded and just destroyed and so when I finally got to the point of like okay I'm ready to start doing my siding and I uncover I take the tarp off and I uncover this metal I find it all ruined it's like went from this beautiful champagne just gorgeous finish that was really spoke to my aesthetic as a color um and now it's all ruined i lost my shit. Like, my neighbor came home i had a sledgehammer and a chunk of this metal i took a 10 foot long piece of metal and crumpled it into a ball with my sledgehammer <laughs> i was so upset you know and i just i have learned that for me it's much better to move anger in a productive way, let it move through instead of bottling it up and having it come out sideways later, right? So this is a safe <laughs> way. I'm not hurting anyone, not causing any harm. I'm just getting this frustration out with a sledgehammer, just wailing on this piece of metal. As it turns out, I had salvaged a bunch of other metal as well, which is then what I ended up using. And I'm so glad that the original metal got ruined. Because in the end, the metal I ended up using is so much more beautiful, you know, and it's very clear to me in stepping back and looking at it all complete now that if I'd used the original metal, it would not have, it would have not been good. It would have been very busy. It was, had more corrugations vertically, and it would have just been way too visually busy with all these vertical lines. Whereas the metal I ended up using has a wider, you know, spaced pattern, Um, And you know, again, like the the miracles, you know, I I basically I was one piece of metal short from completing the building. And I'm just like, oh, how am I? I'm gonna have to cut some other pieces apart. How am I gonna make this work? I'm gonna have to splice in a different color metal, but I need to do it intentionally so it doesn't just look like an accident. And then I thought, you know, I'm gonna go back to my metal pile and just check one more time. And sure enough below 30 sheets of metal like I moved a ton of metal out of the way and there was one more piece of the metal that I actually needed and then on top of that it's like I had initially started doing the metal coming one way from the wall and then I realized oh the way the overlap is working I should actually start at the other end both pieces of metal I started kind of arbitrary based on where my windows were and how I wanted to line up with no measurement no overall plan for how many I had no idea how many sheets of metal it was gonna take to go down this 40 feet of wall. So I've started on one side and come up to a corner. I go way down to the other end of the building and work my way back through a couple corners and end up back at this corner. When I go to look at how I need to cut the metal to make the overlap, it turns out that to a millimeter, the piece of metal coming in from the north met the piece from the south perfectly overlapping on their corrugation ridge to within a millimeter. Like <laughs> if I had drawn that out on a computer-aided design You program, couldn't have planned if that. Tried to measure you it know. and put it up that way, they never would have lined up that perfectly. Yeah. And it was literally this moment where when I realized that, I almost fell over. I stepped back and just stood slack jaw going like, like I, was, I was speechless. Like how did this line up to the millimeter so that instead of having to trim it, I was able to just fold them together and make their corrugation match. And, you know, that kind of stuff happens. It's amazing.
0: Yeah. The universe is pretty incredible.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And it's so cool. And it's, it's one of the, there there are these moments where if you're open to it and really paying attention, you start seeing the magic in day-to-day life and it's everywhere. There's magic all around us all the time. We just have to open up and receive it, you know, instead of being so, so attached. And so this is the the flip side to me, the flip side to skillful surrender is when you're so tightly trying to be in control and here for the audience, like I'm making a fist as tight as I can, the tighter I clench my fist around whatever it is I'm trying to be in control of, the more I choke the life force out of it, the more I choke and prevent, I constrict and don't allow any space for the magic of life to flow through. And so it's...
1: Holding even. our stories loosely is the term yeah. I use for that often.
2: Uh, say that again. I couldn't quite hear you.
1: Yeah, I'm, I, I apologize. There's some wind that since we started recording
2: has suddenly right. picked up.
1: Uh, I said it's uh, holding our stories loosely is yeah. a term that I use for yep. that often. Yeah.
2: Beautiful. Yeah, The more the more we constrict and try to be in control the more we interfere with the infinite possibilities that the universe has to make something great happen. Cause my, my brain is finite. It fits in my finite skull. The universe is infinite. And so there's always infinite ways that something can work out really well. I might have one idea how it can work out well, but there may be vastly better things that can happen than I can imagine. If I allow the universe to step in, you know, if I'm not in control.
0: <laughs> oh man. <clears throat> Sven, I could talk to you all day. Um Same. and I think I think okay. Beer's kid too. Uh, I feel like you should have your own podcast and I would listen to that every week.
2: <laughs> I'm thinking um, about it. I've yeah. got a I've got a novel worth of life lessons that I've learned through being a circus artist, through basically what I call being a master of the impossible arts, through constantly trying impossible things. And I'm like, I've got to, like, these are just universal principles that can apply to anything. Yeah. I really want to share with folks.
1: Yeah. You know? Do, Do you currently have, like, an online presence where people no. can find out, out about your project or your thoughts or no?
2: Not really. The only place That's... people can really follow, like, the build is my Instagram, which is SvenTastic99.
0: And we'll link uh-huh. to that in the show notes as well. So people can yeah. find you. We'll but yeah, talk- no,
2: my online presence is a disaster right now because I've been so focused on just That's trying okay.
0: to,
2: to get a house where I could actually set up a computer. I mean, my computer screen looks like it's bleeding on my laptop because this computer has been used at like negative 20 degrees and the LCD screen didn't really like that. <laughs> you know, so it's like, I got to get my house built so I can set up my office and then I can work on my online presence again because my my website basically is so out of date that it doesn't even load anymore um but really that's kind of fine for me because this move to a new state to the place that feels like home to building a new house is very much a transition from the first chunk of my career to what i'm going to be creating next so i'm kind of allowing myself to go invisible um in terms of my websites for the moment because I know once I build this house, I will have also created some significant internal shifting within myself. It's very much about rebuilding myself after some pretty hard experiences that I went through in Colorado. Um, and that, you know, I'll just speak to this. This has been the other miraculous part of the journey for me is that in the past, I was someone who could tackle anything, you know, just nothing intimidated me willing to work relentlessly. I've got, I've never had coffee in my whole life. I've never had black tea. I've never had caffeine, but I've had the ability to stay awake for days if I need to, to get a project done. Um, I've just got this enormous well of energy I can tap into, but through a number of just devastating heartbreaks that I went through in Colorado, it kind of knocked the wind out of my sails, you know, and I wasn't as much in a state of trust with the universe. And so, like I say, this, this process has really been about me rebuilding trust with the universe and life at large, but also having the opportunity to once again experience myself as a force of nature. There have been some days on the project, like I had basically a 24 to 30 hour window between storm systems in the dead of winter two years ago to get my roof on. And so I worked from 6.30 in the morning to four thirty-five AM the next morning. And just in one continuous push, I put my roof on the building and then the snow started flying again. And there's been any number of just Herculean tasks like that as one person trying to do what normally is done by, you know, 10 people um, that have given me the chance to experience myself as powerful again. And so that has been immensely valuable. Um, And I forget where I was going with that. There was something else. I was going to tie that into that process. Um, Yeah. So the reinvention process that, that there's a recreation happening within myself as I build a home for myself, that it very much is me rebuilding who I am and who am I going to be in the next major phase of my life. Right. And so once that has been completed then it's gonna be really easy to deploy more of an online presence and what are the different areas that i want to share my gift with the world like i'm very much here to be of service to humanity how is that going to play out in the next phase of life
1: <laughs> i think we may very well need to have you on the show again sometime to talk oh. about your your vision for what's next and what has what has been in the past and uh, in your process of navigating through that.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'll tell you what, I definitely definitely think it's very much about all of us who have not bought into the system, you know, who have chosen to van life, to go off grid, to do alternative lifestyles, to not just get the normal nine to five job, whatever it is. There are so many of us kind of in what I would call our mass peer group Mm -hmm. who have seen that the system is not working on so many different levels, whether social equity, racial equity, economic, you know, environmental sustainability. We've seen that our whole lives. We know that we can do better. And I think it is coming time for us to stand up and take leadership roles because our leadership is just owned by the corporations. They're, we don't have, in politics, we don't have leaders, we have corporate puppets. Yeah. And so the only way we're gonna address things like climate change and racial equity, social justice, is us. We're gonna be the leaders. So that's very much where I'm looking towards is how can I effectively you know, be a leader and help address the issues that I care about so much in this world, which there are a lot of that need a lot of help right now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, completely agree with absolutely everything you said. And I think I think that we're all here for very similar reasons. Yeah. Um, and we will definitely have more episodes where we talk about things like that. This is definitely gonna be one of our longer episodes, I think. But yeah. I don't I don't think that our audience is gonna mind, honestly. I think they're gonna listen to it Not and a bit. be like, oh. Like I haven't, I, I saw the clock when I started recording and I'm, where's part two now. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But it doesn't, it feels like I've been talking to you for like five minutes. Like I have so much more I want to communicate about and like, I so many more questions I want to ask. Um, but this is going to turn into an audiobook if we keep recording. So we're just yeah. going to have to yeah. cut it. To episode. But... <laughs> and my battery's at 4%. So,
2: oh, <laughs> ooh,
0: all right. <laughs> well, with
2: we that, a, um, <laughs> deliberate conclusion here instead of just being yeah. cut off by technology.
0: Yep. Yep. So, yeah. uh, thank you to everybody who is uh, still here for this episode. Um, whether this is the first time you're listening to Deliberate Living or if you've been here since the beginning, which has been almost two years now, um, I personally am super grateful for everybody for being a part of this journey um, and super grateful to Beers and super, super grateful to Sven for being a part of this as well. Um, okay. If you guys liked this episode, you know you know the drill, do the thumbs up, do the five stars, share it with people, subscribe, hit the bell so you get notifications all those things a they help you because then they'll show your algorithm will be like oh you like this here's more things like this but it really helps us and it helps us get seen by other people who need to hear these stories who want to find other people who can teach them how to follow their intuition or can show them that they're not alone in the world when they feel like they don't necessarily always fit in but they know something is wrong and you know like it it helps us it helps them it helps you um so go ahead and do that uh if you want some behind the scenes or extra content from us we do have a patreon specifically for the podcast um and yeah i hope you guys tune in next week for another excellent episode bye yeah. thanks Ben. thanks holly yeah.